Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Coot here. I am, you know, really excited about my special guest today. I really admire his work tremendously and uh, enjoyed his, his work His work has inspired me, The Book of Awakening. He's an author of the book of Awakening, Having the Life You Want by Being Present to the Life That You Have, True Inspiration. Um, You're going to love it. We've had amazing guests on, folks, but I think my guest today really embodies uh, what Soul Talk is about. He's moved and inspired readers, seekers all over the world with The Book of Awakening, and I think he's about to come out with his 21st book, which uh, I started reading. Drinking from the River of Light, the Life of Expression. And we're going to get into all topics about life and living and just authenticity and creativity. He uh, also wrote more together than alone, things that join the sea and the sky and many others. Welcome to the conversation, the amazing Mark Nepo. Welcome to Soul Talk, Mark. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's really, uh, really a thrill to have you on and uh, have, have a bunch of questions for you. Uh, I know you're a poet, a philosopher, a, you know, a spiritual teacher for, I think, probably over 40 years now. And uh, so I'm curious, especially for those that, you know, those, those in my audience that may not know of your work yet, I'm excited for them to know, know of your work, but those that may not know of your work, uh, I'm always curious, just always like to find out a bit about the journey of, of, of those I'm speaking to and I mean, what, what is the path to being yeah. a poet and, and, and uh, a, a philosopher? I mean, it's not like they really teach that in kindergarten or, you know, high school. <laughs> I'm just curious, I'm curious how that happens. Can you break <laughs> well, that down a bit? True. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, I think that, that, and, and and let me also couch this in in the context that 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 everyone uh, has those these capabilities within them, and we'll we'll get into that a bit as well. And um, but you know I, start, I I when I look back and I'm 68 and um, I, I mean that seemed really old to me when I was young. It doesn't seem old now. And uh, and you know but when I was a, even a little boy before I had language for any of this, the world, always, life always spoke to me through metaphor. I mean, I didn't even know what metaphor was till I was late, later, got older, but, but it felt like I, when I was alone, I was never alone. And the, you know, the wind through the trees would be saying, listen, look, look, what is this like? Listen, I have a lesson for you. And, you know, and as I got you know, a little older in high school and growing up, of course, came the first 
the first fall in love and and I really started writing uh, because that first woman that I fell in love with, you know, dumped me, and uh, which is archetypal, as, as all of it happens to all of us. And, and, you know, at that point, I wasn't like a loner, but I didn't have, I didn't develop true, true intimate friends until I went to college. So I had lots of acquaintances. But, you know, I began to write. Uh, as a way to keep myself company through healing through the heartache and um, mm-hmm. of having a brush with love and, and then it's gone. And and then as I started to heal, I realized I wasn't really talking to myself. I had begun a conversation with the universe that life had, mm-hmm. had does for all of us, had opened my heart and broken it open. And now there was a uh, an inlet between in me and the rest of the world and the universe and and the life of expression as we'll get to talk about is is the way we move in and out of that inlet that is our heart and so you know i uh began to write and uh suddenly you know somewhere along the way i started to realize oh somebody said this is poetry and you know um, and I and I did realize when I was in college, in quite a flash of intuition, um, that I was a poet. In fact, even though I hadn't written very much, and I was I went to uh, a state school in upstate New York, City Cortland, and uh, this is in 1969, and um, and I was uh, going down this you know like a lot of college towns, the school was on a hill. And around anywhere that you fell off the hill, there were just bars everywhere, you know. And I was going downtown as a freshman one day, one after late afternoon, to explore all of that. And and a wind went past my ear and stopped me from behind my head. And it and I, I almost almost could see the wind reach across the valley to the next mountain. And I saw that same wind brush the trees on the far horizon and I understood the reach and in that moment against all logic I knew I was a poet I knew I was a poet mm-hmm. and um, and then you know the next vacation went home and excited to tell my parents that I was a poet even <laughs> though I hadn't written anything and and had the the other archetypal argument with my parents about you know my yes. father who grew up in the Depression, the Great Depression of the 20s, who was very concerned about survival for us, their children. And I was the first in my family to go to college. So, you know, I come home and declare I'm a poet. And he was a master woodworker. So he didn't know about poetry. He knew about creativity for sure. But, uh, you know, he said, how are you going to make a living? And and I don't know where it came from me, but I said, I'm going to live a making. And I think mm-hmm. a lot, I've spent much of my life trying to understand what came out of me in that moment. But mm-hmm. if we fast forward a little bit, you know, I went to college, I went to, uh, you know, graduate school and um, I wound up teaching at University of Albany for many years. But in my, you know, mid-30s, as you probably know from my work, you know, I mm-hmm. almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And so, you know, cancer came along and turned me upside down and inside out. 
Yeah. And and that furthered and changed everything. Um, you know, blessed to still be here. Several things happened to me that were fundamental that really cast me on my life's path. And, you know, one was that, you know, I was raised Jewish. I have a strong tie to my the culture, the heritage of being Jewish. But I am, after my cancer journey, I'm a student of all paths. And all my books and all my work and all my chances to teach and be with others is all about trying to unfold, reveal what I feel is the common center of all paths and the unique gifts of each and how do we personalize that in our own very, very personal practices. So I feel it's, I can look back and say that the poet in me is the part of me that sees and hears uh, and, and the philosopher in me is the part in me that then tries to make sense of what I've seen and heard or felt. And it's the cancer survivor in me that is, is just, mm. as a teacher, is very committed to, we have to translate all of that into daily practices. Yeah. And we have to ask the next question that says, where does that live in you? And what does that mean to you so that the next time you or me or someone who's listening is feeling fear, they have some kind of personal tool they can turn to to mm. try to cope with it. Mm. Got it. When you, Mark, when, when you had cancer, obviously that's, uh, that's an intense moment intense reality to face your mortality in such a way. I'm curious, when you were going through the experience, um, how, how did you deal with it within yourself um, that moved you through, that got you through? I mean, thank God you're still here. You're creating and inspiring people now with your lessons and learnings. But what, 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 what kept you going? What, what, what prevented you from giving up? And what did you do? Were there any specific practices? I know you, you write about some of this yeah. because I was listening. Were there any specific practices? Because, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that if it's maybe they're going through a life-threatening illness or maybe they're just sure. financially struggling and they want to give up, you know. And so how did you make it through that? Well, you know, there, there are, and it's a wonderful question, and let's just touch on some of it, because that, that we could spend hours on. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I would say first, first off is that, um, and I want to recognize as, as I start to share some of these things, that, you know, whatever I have to share are examples and not instructions. Yes. Um, there, you know, because I believe everybody, and this is also key to all of my teaching, that Everyone has their own wisdom and their own gifts. And, and in fact, when I do you know, teach, I feel like that's my job is to help introduce others to their own wisdom and their own gifts. And experience unearths the language of our own wisdom. And so being confronted with death, with pain, with fear, the likes I had never known. You know, I was in my early 30s. I had never really been through anything like that or anything of that order at all. Um, you know, I was opened up and forced to 
be out in the world, have the inside be outside more than I had ever imagined. And that offered a lot of wisdom immediately, you know. So several things I can point to, a constellation of things, let's say, that will just give us a taste of, uh, of, of some of this, you know, for me. And then I invite people who, who and we can talk more about how that translates to other people and their specific journeys and, and specific practices that people might enlist if they're struggling right now. You know, but, you know, one thing is that, you know, like I said, I hadn't been through really anything that difficult. So I was terrified. I, I was afraid of everything. I was, you know, um, I had this rare form of lymphoma, so it required this gauntlet of tests, never knowing what any one of them would show or find out. I had a huge tumor on my brain, like as wow. the size of a grapefruit. And, um, and so at every juncture, you know, the first thing was at every test that you would normally go through with some kind of anesthetic or local or something, I had to go through without because in case what they found led to immediate surgery, I had to be available to general anesthetic. So I was forced mm. to be awake for all of these procedures uh, wow. when I really didn't want to be. <laughs> so that was the first mm. lesson was uh, you will be and you'll face it and you'll get through it. So one of the first things was I had, and, and let me preface this part by saying anybody who's going through anything medical or anything difficult, different procedures galvanize our fear. So what's fearful mm. and difficult for me is not for someone else. So for me, um, you know, but it's something we'll do that. We'll galvanize our fear and be something we have to go through as part of our journey. And, um, you know, for me, it was bone marrow samplings. And I've had other friends who later had to go through that, and I didn't want to tell them about it because it was so terrible for me. And, you know, wow. they come back and, oh, that was not bad. You know, something else was that difficult for them. So it's mm -hmm. not to make people afraid of bone marrow samplings. But for me, they were extremely difficult. And I, I just, after having one, and I had to have more, I just didn't know how I was going to go through it. I, I was terrified. And... And then something happened, not through wisdom on my part, but more by exhaustion. You know, hmm. I got to a point where suddenly I I had to go through another one, and it occurred to me that um, the actual moment of the procedure lasted like 30 seconds. And, of course, life would be on the other side of those 30 seconds. And so it didn't, it didn't make it where I, I could, um, uh, you know, it didn't make it pleasant. It didn't make it not yeah. painful. I didn't, make, but it right-sized it because I could get through 30 seconds, even though I didn't mm -hmm. want to do it. And so suddenly um, this gave a different cast to the notion of impermanence. You know, we think of impermanence, the great Buddhist notion of impermanence is, oh, we're all going to die, and we will. And, uh, but, <laughs> that's, but, but when we look at impermanence within a life, yes, we, uh, yeah, that means that that 30 seconds is not going to last. It's not going to change. Mm. Yes, it will be difficult. Mm. No, I don't want to do it. It'll hurt, uh, you know, but that it will be impermanent as well. And so it restored me to the flow of life 
to trust right. the flow of life, you know. And and so it's important to, you know, uh, fear gets its power from not looking. Fear gets its power from not looking. You know, the, we'll never eliminate fear because fear is part of being human and it has a function, a healthy function. Right-sized fear alerts us to danger, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual. And what we do is, because we're human, we inflate that as if the added inflation will protect us more. Yes. But it never does. It never does. We should, it just inflates it. <laughs> so we should. So you're saying fear gets its power from not looking. So you're encouraging us to to face, to turn and look, to turn and face the fear. We we must face what we fear. And uh-huh. it, you know you have the old proverbial, the, the proverbial you know boogeyman in the closet. That if you're as a child, you know someone tells you there's a goblin in the in the closet, and the more you don't look the bigger it gets. Now, when you open the closet and you look in there, it's dark and you don't see anything, but then you wait and our eyes adjust and it gets lighter. So what's actually happening? It wasn't dark, darker in the first place. That light, that space was what it was. It didn't change. But the more we look, our eyes adjust to what is there and we see more clearly. So one of the quietest courages we can summon is to withstand the fear and the tension and look at what we fear long enough that we can see it exactly as it is. And then we have real choices. You know, it's interesting in in I don't practice a kaido, but you know in the martial art of kaido, and I've read about this, and it, it provided an amazing metaphor here about this, and that is that you know in a kaido where where uh, practice practitioners are taught, students are taught to use the energy of what's coming yes. at you rather than meeting it, right? So one of the I read in this one from a master that um, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but but the way he taught his students emotionally was that, say someone's coming at you with a knife. Well, the human response is adrenaline, fear. Everything in front of you is filled with fear. That's alarm. That's how fear says hello. That's how pain says hello. That's how worry says hello. But that's not how it needs to stay. So, so what this Kaido master is saying, so now that you've seen the field of alarm, Withstand the cloud, let that cloud of alarm dissipate until you can see where is the precise threat. So in this imagined example, if only of all the space in front of you, a person holding a knife, it's only the tip of the blade in the hand held up that is dangerous. Every other space is safe. Now you have real choices. Now you have real choices. Now, now how anybody <laughs> physically, actually, with someone coming at them with a knife can yeah. do all of that in the space of seconds is beyond me. But the metaphor for how we emotionally and spiritually need and mentally need to confront fear, fear will say hello 
in a cloud of alarm. And our challenge, our quiet courage, is to look at what we fear until the cloud of alarm dissipates and we can see the actual points of what we're afraid of. And we can discern then what is safe and what is not safe. Now we have authentic choices rather than responding to everything that's fearful. Wow. When you, when you were in this, having this experience, um, facing death, did there, as, as I'm hearing what you're saying, did there come a point, Mark, where you made, you were able to make peace? Uh, you know, cause at first you said you were terrified. And I, I mean, I'm imagining, wow, it would be quite terrifying to realize what's about to potentially happen and then have to go through these treatments moment by moment that were, you know, the bone marrow treatments that were all challenging. Did you come to a point where, or was there a moment where you made, where you embraced the fear, you turned to it and there was peace. There was, can you share uh, a bit more about that. Yeah, so I think, yeah, so I think that, you know, when we go through anything like I went through or whatever, or difficulty of some kind or pain or loss or grief, these heighten and make more acute the same choices that everyone alive faces in ordinary time. Mm-hmm. They just heighten them and bring them into greater relief. And that's why when those who suffer, and we all suffer, so that mm-hmm. those when we suffer, we have a wisdom that the rest of us need. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I find remarkable that is lacking is we seldom ask those who suffer, what is it do you see from what you've been through? What, mm-hmm. what is the wisdom... What do you see and what can you share with the rest of us from what you see for what you have gone through? And, and since everybody, as I said, suffers, everybody has this wisdom. So, so one of this, what yes. you're asking here in this question really points up our, our everyone alive. I, I feel I've written about this, but everyone alive, there's two things that, that we, among many, but here just let's talk about these two things that are archetypal, that is, everyone may, may experience them uniquely, but everyone goes through it. And that is, everyone has an argument with life. Uh-huh. It is there. Everyone, uh-huh. You know, life is unfair, life is this, life is that. You know, look at these people next to me. You know, I eat mm-hmm. well. They're, all they're doing is having, drinking brandy and eating bad things, and they're 105 <laughs> and, you know. Right. You know, so everybody has fair. an argument right. with life. It's not mm-hmm. fair, right? Mm-hmm. And that argument is given to us so that through our experience, it's an initiation into our acceptance of life. Mm. And sometimes we play out that argument with those around us. We, we want someone to be a surrogate that we can argue with when it's really our argument and it's with life. And the other is, the other part of this is that every single person, like it or not, we have to have a conversation with death. 
We have to have a conversation with our own mortality throughout our life. And, you know, I think that, are you familiar with uh, Carlos Castaneda's books? Yes. At all? Yes. Yeah. So, in you know, and for those of us who are listening, that you know, very briefly, Carlos Castaneda was a, a doctoral student in entomology of in bugs and all kinds of things in Southwest, and mm-hmm. was doing his doctorate. And the story through these books is that he went to a Yaque Yaque healer, a Native American Southwest. Uh, American healer to ask about his knowledge about all these these artifacts and these bugs for his dissertation and the guy was a sorcerer and uh, Don Juan was his name and he said yeah well you're going to be my apprentice and Carlos was like oh I, I didn't agree to that he said it doesn't matter you're going to be my apprentice and all these books are the the unfolding of his very rational way of life and so all of that to say, so Journey to Ixland is one of those books that I think if you were to read one, for me, I would read, I would read that. I would read them all, but if you can only read one, I'd read that one. And in there, he, and this relates to obviously what we're talking about, why it comes to mind. So very soon in his apprenticeship, they're sleeping out in the desert, and in the middle of the night, Don Juan stirs Carlos out of sleep because a mountain lion is chasing all of a sudden like coming after them and they scale this cliff and wind up, you know, with incredible adrenaline and fear and, and they rake it to the top of the cliff, escape the mountain lion and fall asleep exhausted. And in the morning in the light, Carlos hmm. looks at that cliff and he, goes, he, he says, how I can't, I don't know how to climb. How did I do that? <laughs> right. and, and, and Don Juan's first, first lesson to him is death is always over your left shoulder as an advisor, mm. as an advisor on how unique and precious life is if you hold nothing back. But the yes. catch is, he teaches him, he says, consult death as an advisor, but don't turn around and get hypnotized. Mm. Don't get hypnotized by death. You need to look forward into life, and death as an advisor only will make life all the more precious and unique. And I think that's certainly what cancer did for me, you know. And um, and I think that, you know, there were times where I, my first, I had two bouts with cancer within a couple of years. They were extensions of the same cancer. And in the first one, I, I really, I was afraid of everything I had to go through, but I didn't think I would die. I was terrified of what I would have to go through. And, and, and the tumor on my brain uh, vanished. It was a miracle. Mm. And mm. within 10 months, 11 months, there was a very, this was so dramatic on my head that on my rib in my back was a sister tumor that was growing very mm. smallly. And then that continued to grow. And I had to have that rib removed surgically. And I had to have months of chemo after that, which almost killed me. And Wow. And that was the second, that second round was when I was afraid I would die. You know, I felt real despair because I felt like, wow, I, I waste this miracle. Did I not do what I was supposed to do? Did I, you know, now, now I was like, oh my God, I'm back here again. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so getting through all of that, you know, there was a moment maybe five years out. I'm now 31 years from the heat of that 
journey, but there's about five years, six years out. And, you know, there's PTSD uh, yes. going through something like threatening, just like war veterans. And, you know, for, you know, for me, I'm sure for many people, you know, you get a pimple on the scar line mm-hmm. and then you go, uh-oh, is it a tumor? And, um, yeah. and I remember I was, I was taking a shower and um, about five, six years out from all this. And, um, and I did, I felt a pimple on the scar line and in, you know, in 30 seconds, I went through everything. I got afraid. I, I got anxious. Uh, I'm in the shower. I thought, well, what if this is a, you know, what if this is a recurrence? What if it's coming back? What if the chemo doesn't work this time? What if there's no way to do surgery? And I got more and more scared and the water is pouring on me in the shower. And then I got to, well, what if, okay, what if this is it? What if I do all of this and it does, none of it works and I'm going to die? And then, mm. and then I got to a moment of stillness beyond the fear. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't need a wake-up call. I'm awake. And since um, God and, and, and sanctity is everywhere, um, I said, well, if this is all it, I'm going to finish my shower. <laughs> because mm. everything's holy and there's nowhere to go. Mm. And, you know, so I, and, and it doesn't mean that I don't, you know, ever since then I've had, you know, I feel like throughout life, then we are asked at certain points to recalibrate yes. our view. So now I'm in my 60s and I'm healthy, thank God. I feel fine. But, you know, as you get older, stuff yeah. happens. You know, you just, it yeah. doesn't mean, that doesn't always mean you're ill. It just means, you know, stuff is wearing out or doesn't work as well. Yeah. Or, and so one of the things I've, I've learned recently after all these years is that one of the traumas from back then was that I always viewed health and illness as two extremes, like either you're ill or you're well. And if something mm. out of the ordinary happens to my body, must mean I'm ill because that's what it meant when I got cancer. But now as I'm in my 60s and I'm well, I'm finding I ha- I can't live like that. I-, I have to, that was like a PTSD orientation. Like I, you know, it, you look at a tree, an old tree that's a beautiful 200-year-old tree. It has nicks and scars and places where woodpeckers have pecked and, you know, spiders are spinning wet. It's like the longer we're here, you know, just because we experience sensation and erosion and all kinds of things, it doesn't mean we're ill. And so mm. part of, you know, yeah. So I'm having, even now, after all these years, that's an awareness that I have to recalibrate and reorient um, how I'm, my conversation with life and death. Right. Right. How does how does one? I guess as I'm hearing you, it's, it's beautiful just listening, and I'm, I'm you know I'm just taking in what you're saying, and I really hope those listening in and just taking what you're saying as I'm kind of feeling what you went through, and it's almost like I'm right there with you as you're sharing, and so I'm wondering now. Okay, life obviously isn't easy, and Obviously, 
you know, even though you get maybe more wisdom and experience, it doesn't necessarily, it's not free of hardships and challenges and difficulties. I mean, when you told me, woof, the second bout of cancer, like, whoa, you know, how to handle that? And I was putting myself in that position. So how, obviously, we have to learn, I think, to, to live with, with courage. And despite the vulnerability of life, because so much is out of our control. And I think for those listening in, based on what you've learned, are there any things that you did? Are there any things that worked for you to basically, how can someone listening in develop the courage? Yeah. So, 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 so courage, I wrote a book. One of my early books was called finding inner courage. And Uh, it's all about, yeah. And, and, um, you know, so so one of the things here that I think is so important is just like I had to get I have to get out of the wellness and illness frame is the notion that life is good or bad, that life is, oh. uh, you know, pleasure or pain, that the truth is that the mm-hmm. essential luminous aliveness of what it is to be here. Is only is only manifest through our being human and through our facing experience, and that life in all of its resources as a whole is resilient and restorative. So, so, so here's a metaphor to help understand that, and that's water. So we all know that when we learn early on that water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, H2O. Well, you know. I, I can't say to you, oh, I just like a glass of the hydrogen, please. Right, right. <laughs> right? Even, even if you could separate it out, it would no yeah. longer be water and it would no exactly. longer be quenching or sustaining. Mm-hmm. And so one of the mysteries of life is that all of it, like H2O, the difficulties, the mysteries, the, the love, the tenderness, the hardship... It all is the water of life. And it's certainly mm. understandable that we, ever since these, you know, the earliest anonymous writings in ancient Assyria, you know, you can find verses that will say, oh, I don't want the bad stuff, all right? You take it. Mm. I just want the good mm. stuff. So that's understandable. But that's not, uh, that's not the way life is put together. And so the... You know, I think life has been put together. It's just difficult enough that we need each other to ensure the journey of love. And so we have to, and there can be no transformation without vulnerability and without tenderness and openness. So one of the things we're challenged to, to get back to your question of what can we do, is in everything, whatever it might be, you know, the difficult things in life always push us back. And our courage has to be in leaning back in. So whatever it is that pushes us back, whether it's pain, fear, worry, doubt, loss, insecurity, we have, the quiet courage is to lean back in and to hold nothing back. Wow. You know, just like in the, the undertow, you know, in, in every shore yeah. in the world, the waves come in and then there's undertow. The waves come in and then there's undertow. And every day, something like undertow will push us back 
and we have to lean back in. So, and and the courage comes because we have to lean back in precisely when we're being pushed back out. So already, you know, so how do we practice? This is what I mean about we have yeah. to personalize this. So we, we talked about fear gets its power from not looking. So anyone who's listening, identify one thing you're afraid of today. Mm. Look at it quietly. Get to a safe space. Uh, if you need to be with a friend or a loved one, look at it until it's right-sized. It won't make the fear go away. You know, the second thing is lean back. Whatever's pushing you back out today, lean back in. Be present. Open your heart. When we close, we need to open. When we fall down, we need to get up. You know, I think when we're afraid, we need to reach for others. You know, I, I did an interview this summer with someone from a, London, a magazine in London, a young person, and, and uh, he was talking to me about, you know, that there's an epidemic of loneliness in in London mm. in the young generation. Yes, and yes. asking me, you know, uh, well, any suggestions? And, and, you know, and my, my, and again, examples, not instructions, but what I learned from my cancer journey was, you know, when you, you don't interview ambulance drivers. You take the first one that comes along. <laughs> and if you're lonely, you, you don't wait for the perfect friend or lover mm-hmm. or someone. You don't have all these requirements. You reach out. You get out of the house. You go to a cafe where mm-hmm. where you, you're annoyed if someone interrupts you, but you're thankful that you're being interrupted by another live oh, being. God. And then you say hello. Right. And you're awkward and you don't know what, yeah. and you're thankful that you're awkward and you're alive and you're out there with other living mm. beings. This is it. This is, this is where we, this is where we're human and this is where everything is beautiful and this is where the thousand small angels appear every day in, in the unexpected ways that we brush up against each other. And, and so, you know, the courage is to break out of our, and this, this is some, a break out of our habits and our routine. Yeah. So, so there's two things here that triggers into the book more together than alone, which is all about mm-hmm. community and looking throughout history and across cultures at moments when we've worked well together. But, you know, one of the things that's very difficult today, and it's happened before in history, but it's happening again. And, um, and I refer to in there, there's a contemporary developmental psychologist, Robert Keegan, who teaches at Harvard. And he defines centrism, like self-centeredness, ethnocentrism, national centrism, any way that you are self-centered, that you see your way of being, thinking, feeling as, as the center. He defines that as when we mistake what is familiar as true. Interesting. Now that, that's very helpful because as soon as we see what's familiar as true, we stop looking for what is true and we see what is new and unfamiliar as false. Mm-hmm. And so what does that do? That makes all efforts at learning 
that we only look for things that will confirm what we already know. Mm. This is the source of prejudice, of bias, of hate. When we mistake what is familiar is true and push away everything, you know, versus that how do we ever learn and grow if we don't look beyond what we know? Yeah. This is why, like, you take, like, so here, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, dumping on uh, Pandora, the app Pandora, you know. But, yeah. But, but what it's based on speaks to what, we're, what I'm talking about here. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, what it does is it identifies a piece of music I like, and then it gives me what mm. I like. Mm. Well, how do I ever yeah. hear music? And how do I ever hear music I never heard of before? <laughs> right, right. Mm. You, you you know so so the premise of it is what I find disheartening and yeah. and dangerous. And dangerous. So how do we so prevent to one other? Go go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go, I was going to ask how do we prevent from sort of getting uh, stuck in a rut of familiarity and comfort and sameness and you know the, the sort of TikTok over and over again. Uh, and holding up, clinging to that for a sense of safety, security, success. Well, this is this being true. By opening our heart and listening and uh, admitting how little we know. You know, uh, Thomas Merton, the great Thomas Merton said, if we truly beheld each other, we fall down and worship each other. Most of our conversations, and I struggle with it too, we all do, are, I, even with good intention, you, you know, you, you share with me something you're going through, and I'm already searching in my file for something to share, a story, a common response, something that can either comfort you or corroborate what you're feeling, um, or maybe I, I want to, you know, I view it differently, so now I'm looking for something in my file that's different that's opposing, that's going to counter it. But, but as soon as I do that, I'm no longer present. I'm not listening. I'm not there. I'm gone. And so the courage to truly listen that, you know, like we're talking now and I don't know what you're going to say. You don't know what I'm going to say. And, and therefore, yes. I don't know what we're going to say next. Because mm. it's real. It's live. So one of the things is, I think for all of us to rec- to be aware, the work of self-awareness is to recognize when we start to do this and just drop it. You know, mm. how many times, you know, we tell a story and we find ourselves telling the same story. And if it doesn't feel real, the courage to say, I don't want, <laughs> even the mid-story, I don't want to tell, I, I, I don't really want to tell this story anymore. <laughs> right. I, want you, I want you to tell me a story. Right. So this gets to like, you know, one of the great teachers in in the natural universe is the sun because the sun huh. emanates light and warmth in all directions without preference. Yes. Mm. And the heart is an inner sun. Mm. And our job is to emanate light and warmth in all directions without preference. So, you know... Mm. I don't want to read movie reviews or restaurant reviews or theater reviews. 
I don't want to. I don't want to know if I'm going to like it or not. You know, ever since almost dying, right? I I want to go and see a play, and I'll be happy if it's a bad play, and I can tell you afterwards <laughs> over a drink that was a terrible play because it was live theater. Right. It was live theater. You know. Mm. Mark, that's the whole perspective shift. Like, yes, embracing that. Hey, this might be terrible. It might be, it's going to be whatever it is. But as you're talking, I think it speaks to the sense of like really being alive and not just living sort of controlled, manicured existence. I love it. Yeah, so that we can be touched by what we experience without judgment. Discernment is different than judgment. Mm. Discernment, discernment lets us lean in and experience things in in great detail and intimacy. Judgment pushes things away. That's the, so, so this gets to, you know, one of the other things that we all do that's very understandable, but that's not helpful. And that is we extrapolate our experience to a worldview. That is, if I'm afraid, then I make up a map and a life view that that life is a fearful thing. That part of life will be fearful, but not all of life is fearful. If I'm in pain, then I make a world view that the world is a painful place. You know, if I've if I've been betrayed, then I say, you know what, this is a, the world is an untrustworthy thing. Okay, and while certainly our experience is that's true. That's not all of experience. And that goes back to the water and the glass and everything being whole. And so I I learned this in a very powerful moment that shaped my life. And that was, you know, during my cancer journey, um, after I had the rib removed and I began chemo and I was in New York City and I was given my first chemo treatment was horribly botched. And... I was with loved ones in a Holiday Inn because we were traveling to get to the place. I started to get sick, you know, throwing up. And the only medicine I was had been given to take with me was oral, so I couldn't keep it down. And never knowing it, and this was two weeks after my rib had been removed, so, you know, at some point eventually I started to cough up some blood, and, and then we eventually did go to the emergency room, but... Never knowing, like every 20 minutes, like this can't keep going on and do we really need to go to the emergency room? But somewhere in my exhaustion, you know, the sun started to come up and I was afraid and in pain, not knowing what was next and it was awful. But as the sun came up, I realized as true as this was for me, I had a moment of realizing that somewhere else down the road, a baby was being born. Mm. And somewhere else, a couple were making love for the first time. And somewhere else, a a father and son had been estranged, were having coffee after years of not talking. And, and, you know, what we tend to do in those moments, most of us, all of us, it was only this grace, I think grace, which is, you know, um, not a person headed God touching us, but the wave of life force touching us. made me break out of it. But, you know, we tend to say either if I see that, then I minimize my, well, then what I'm going through doesn't matter. Or we go Mm. the other way and we say, you know what? I am, 
you know, terrified. I'm in pain. I don't know where this is going. And then that paints all of life. And I think one of the courages that we need all of us to return to, because we have it, is, no, I need the company of someone who knows what it is to be afraid, but I need everything that's safe to heal. When I'm broken, I need the company of those who know what it is to be broken, but I need everything not broken to heal. Mm. I need the wonderful, mysterious diversity of life to mm. heal me when, when I'm not there. Yes. And so both are true. We don't have to choose. Like what I was going through in that moment was very real. And it was not the only thing happening in life. Yeah. 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 The ability to really expand and remember the whole that's happening. You're giving me wondering about so many questions, Mark. I just, like, I, <laughs> so many questions I just want to ask of all. I think we need, we need like a day to just dive into this episode <laughs> is how, I, how I'm starting to feel. I feel like we're just beginning here. But before I forget this question, because it's in the moment, is, and it might take us somewhere different, and that's fine too, is, you know, because you were talking about, you know, the, the arguments that we have with life and the ways we argue with life and embracing life and, and, you know, just not living necessarily just in the familiar scripts that we've been, you know, sold and conditioned into being. So you yourself, I'm wondering, like, did you, how much of your life do you plan? Do you strategize? Do, do you goal set? I mean, you know, you, you write a book. I mean, I'm going to assume, you know, your book was a number one New York Times bestseller, which is, hey, that's, you know, that, that's pretty, you know, I know what it takes to, to sell books now, and it's no joke. And so how much do you, does, does Mark Nico plan? Like, do you write a book and go, okay, you're, like your well, new book is coming out? Do you say, okay, I'm, we're going to make this into bestseller, and, and let's set some goals? Or do you just flow? I mean, how does that work? You know, well, I don't, I don't, you know, yeah, so, you know, so, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I, let's put it this way. You know, Winston Churchill said that, Plan, planning is essential, but plans are useless. Mm. And I think what he meant by that, I mean, I, I didn't talk to him, I don't know, but what it means to, says to me is that the preparation or the attention and the thoroughness of attention refines us. The plans don't really matter. Mm. It's, it's the immersion and the care and the attention that refines us, and that's what matters because that burnishes us alive. And so, to answer your question, no, no, I don't say you know um, we're going to make this a bestseller. We're going to do all of that um, because basically, you know, after what I've through in my life, I'm very grateful for you know I I know very yes. well that none of what's happened with my work needs to be that way. Um, and I'm very grateful for it. It's a blessing. But I, don't, I haven't planned it. I don't seek it. I don't work on that end of it. I'm, you know, what I am working on is being, and that's very much what the book, the new book is about, is that yes. um, I very much work on being as alive as possible. And the creative process only brings into sharper relief that everyone 
needs to be involved in that process to live as full a life as they can. And so, you know, um, I, you know, we're taught somehow, and again, this is a very self-centered West way of thinking that, you know, progress, it's like prehistoric times were at the foot of the mountain and we're now at the top um, because we're now here, you know, and, and, you know, no, uh, you know, history is like, we're all the same six inches from heaven in the gutter. And we might have more tools now than than they did in prehistoric times, but they were just as evolved inwardly and faced the same struggles and pleasures and mysteries that that we do. And so, you know, I feel very much that uh, we, we need to have goals, ambitions, and dreams as kindling for the, to spark the aliveness of our soul while we're here on earth. Mm-hmm. And the soul, I don't think, really cares whether those plans or dreams or ambitions come true. <laughs> What's more important is that, you know, we can devote ourselves. Like, often our dreams don't come true, but in devoting ourselves to them, sometimes we come true, and that's more important. That's I love more, that. Sometimes we come true. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. As you, Mark, as you as you write, I know your your new book is is uh, drinking from the river of light, the life of expression. I just actually started reading uh, the copy myself, and it's it's really inspiring. As as a as someone who is a writer, who well, I actually don't consider myself a writer. I've had this story. I, I I don't like writing. I'm a speaker, but I think your book is actually inspiring me to listen more deeply to to this, this kind of my soul's expression. And so as you, I'm curious for you, as you write, and, uh, and it, to me this isn't a question just for those that want to be writers, but as you do write, as you've written 21 books, which is oh, phenomenal. If I could write five, I'd be happy. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you deal with, or how have you dealt with, um, because it is vulnerable to put your work out there in the world, poetry, creativity, ideas that, you know, you're, sh- you're, you're putting your heart out in this manuscript to, you know, for people to hold and uh, dealing with validation, judgment, approval. I think a lot of people don't put their gifts out there into the world, even if they're not lifers, but they're gifts because they're afraid of what, people will think or say or friends, family, society. How have you managed to deal with that, uh, that process, that vulnerability? Well, I think this, and I, I write about this in the book of awakening that, that whether we write or not, you know, whatever we do with our, with our inwardness and, and the truth of our experience, we all have to deal with the friction of being visible and the cost of being invisible. And there's going to be a cost either way. This is part of being alive. And I have found in my life that the cost of being invisible is more painful and, and deadly because it's corrosive. That the more I hide who I am, the less access I have to those parts that are hidden. And so the pain of being visible is just what you're talking about. The friction of being visible is the fact that, yeah, yeah I, you know, I can get uh, rejected or misunderstood or uh, have hurtful things, but that is in no way uh, does it match 
the cost of being hidden, of being in, of vanishing, uh, you know, of being invisible. And so I think the more we are who we are, the more we can right size and withstand uh, those things that happen uh, by being present in the world. And they will happen. You know, you cannot, uh, you know, you uh, a tree stands up to a storm and uh, it gets mixed and branches break and things. But the tree, you know, I mean, trees can come down in big hurricanes, but most of the time trees don't come down because their roots yeah. are strong. And the more we are who we are, the more we strengthen our roots. And, you know, I think that... Um, the, 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 our career is our soul's awakening and where that happens is our occupation and that can change over a lifetime uh, it's not doesn't always remain the same what we wind up doing you know out in the world it's who we are and what we bring uh, you know, this is this is a metaphor that came to me. It's in the book, The One Life We're Given. And I would say also about, I feel, you know, writing these books, I, it's more than I ever imagined. I, you know, this is beyond anything I dreamt. And I feel so blessed. And the truth is that I've been prolific because somewhere along the way, I realized that I I didn't need to understand what I was writing to write it, I actually write about what I need to know. If I only wrote about what I knew, I'd have written very few books. Well, can you repeat and what you just being, said? You did, Mark, you said you don't just write about what you understand. You, can you just repeat that? You write about... Yes. Yeah, for a second. I write about what I need to know. I explore uh, writing know. is what I need to know. So I wrote, you know... I wrote a book I mentioned about courage. That's because it didn't matter whether people thought I was courageous for having gone through cancer or not. I reached the end of what I knew about courage, and I needed to learn how to be more courageous. And so the way that I learn is by inquiry and by that conversation, writing, listening to the conversation of the universe and taking notes. And that, once I understood that, there was no end to what I could write. Because then what comes wow. out becomes my teacher. And I have to be with it wow. to learn from it. I just want you to know that really shifted everything. Like, then what comes out is your teacher. That's, that's really powerful. It, 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 it literally shifted my experience of writing right now uh beautiful oh, well i'm glad i'm glad and it's you know it's very uh powerful to me there are things that and that things that matter take time which is mm -hmm. hard for us to remember in the age of everything being so instantaneous things that matter take time you know i i wrote um one of my first experiences of this is I had written uh, these kind of short, short, short little poems that were kind of like very insightful revelations for me. Over a space of 18 years, I had written five or six of them, and it was and you know every once in a while they just showed up, and I thought they were just 
little nuggets by themselves. And it wasn't until I <laughs> wrote the last one that I realized, no, they all they all go together like jewels on a necklace. And it took 18 years to hear them. Mm-hmm. Wow. When you, so you wrote your book. Uh, I have a few more questions for you, Mark. You wrote your book, sure. Drinking from the River of Light, um, all about sort of the creative process. Well, firstly, what, what do you mean, the river of light? And well, what is that? What does so that let mean? me tell you. Yeah. So what I um, mean, and let me tell you, like, kind of give you another kind of metaphor about the essential uh, frame or inquiry of the book, and, and that is that you know, as we breathe. You know, we're all, we're both breathing right now, and we 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 can't choose. Like I'm not gonna, I can't say today. Oh well, I'm just gonna inhale today. You know, yeah. it work that way, right? Well, the way the heart breathes, I believe, I experience is the inhalation is how we feel and perceive, and the exhalation is how we express. And so it doesn't matter if that's through dance, if that's through uh, writing, if that's through painting. It, and let's widen it. It doesn't have to be the formal arts. It doesn't mean it matter if that's through gardening or if that's through storytelling or if that's through stamp collecting. Okay? Everyone, just like you can't choose to, to literally inhale or exhale, everybody has to have a personal form of expression to be fully alive. And so what the book is about is that deeper process using all the art forms as examples, um, all with the aim of encouraging the reader to develop their own personal form of expression. So the river of light, actually, this is interesting. I was in London last summer and, um, and I was in the Blake, uh, I was speaking in St. James church, which, where William Blake was baptized, which, you know, mm. for a poet was a big thing. And so the, I purposely went that day, I was speaking at night. And so that day I went to the Tate uh, Museum into the Blake room to see some of his, um, you know, prints. And and he he has a whole, like 108 sketches that he did before he died. Uh, he wanted to make engravings of all of them, but they were sketches of, uh, illustrating Dante's Divine Comedy. And he had one there that was Dante drinking from the River of Light. And mm. I, I looked at it, and I stood before it for a long time, and I thought, wow, you know, he, he unknowingly did a self-portrait of himself. Mm. It, was, it was Blake drinking from the River of Light. And then I felt back even further. I said, oh, my God, that's a self-portrait of me. And every writer and artist whoever lived drinking from the river of light and that that river of light. And that's where I got the title because the river of light is how the, the light of life force and love and being flows through every living thing. And when we drink from the river of light, which I believe is through the way, whatever way we're drawn to our own life of expression, we touch into that oneness. We experience oneness. This is why, you know, one, one moment of love, if felt fully, we experience all 
everyone who's ever loved. And one moment of pain experienced, honestly, we have experienced everyone who's ever been through pain. And so that it is our life of expression and the authenticity and courage with which we face what it is to be human that we gain access to everyone who's ever lived in in all time. Mm-hmm. Everyone that's ever lived in all time. I'm just adjusting <laughs> yeah. that. You know, feeling that interconnectivity. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Folks, we're diving deep here with uh, the amazing Mark Nepo. This is a uh, an amazing conversation so far. His new book, Drinking from the River of Light, A Life of Expression. Um, I'm stirred, Mark, I'm stirred and uh, digesting. Uh, but I want to be respectful for your time. There, I want to ask maybe one final question. Um, and sure. I, I'm serious, if, if there's an opportunity to, if you'd be willing to have you back, uh, I feel like we're just beginning this conversation, and so I would love to like bring you back for a part two and like go real deep into you know the creative artistic process. If you'd be up for that, sure, I'd, uh, I'd be happy to that, do that sometime. Sure, that that would be amazing. I I, I read this quote, um, really really inspired me. We are not sole creators of everything we encounter. Uh, everything in the universe has its own agency, and. Uh, this is a quote of yours that really uh, touched me, touched me deeply. Um, so I'm excited to dive into your to your book, uh, Drinking from the Word, River of Light. And, you know, as we begin, at least for now, and uh, we're going to maybe put a pause on it and uh, come back for a part two, hopefully very shortly. That, um, sure, that'd be wonderful. If there were, if there were let's say, and you've shared a lot, but as we kind of bring, let's say, part one to a... a, a a pause, um, if there were, let's say, three of the most important life lessons that you feel you've learned, and clearly there's been a lot, and obviously this is, I'm sure these are just things you've learned, different for everyone, but through everything you've been through, you said 68 years of your life, um, if you could pass these three lessons, learnings, to the, the new generation that you feel, you know, would help evolve the new generation the most, I'm curious as we kind of close. Well, I would, you know, I mean, just, yeah, let me offer thing, and they might be different if you asked me tomorrow, but I'll just say what's coming up in my heart. Yeah. And and so the first thing is that, that, uh, that the heart is the strongest, Mm -hmm. most mysterious uh, muscle we have. It is our greatest ally. It holds a wisdom that we hardly touch. And so my encouragement is to trust and stay in conversation with your heart. Mm. Stay in conversation with your heart. And the second thing is to, um, to, to be on the inward search for your gift. Be on the inward search for your gift. The, the way in which when you give, it will not only serve, but bring you more alive. Mm. And so that will lead me, I'll, I'll close with this small, uh, uh, small poem of mine. It goes like this. The mystery 
is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Mm. Mm. I'm feeling that. Could you repeat that once more, Ma? Sure. The mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. That's exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Folks, hopefully you're, you're feeling it as I am. Some deep wisdom today on Soul Talk with the amazing Mark Nepo, author of the new book, Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression. Uh, I did say this was going to be a really special episode, Mark. I want to just, you know, thank you so much for coming on today and just sharing your love and your heart and your soul and just being you, you know, and just sharing your generosity with with the community and everyone listening in. I know many people will be deeply, deeply blessed. Uh, I want to invite all of you listening in uh, to check out Mark Nico's work. Uh, definitely, uh, I definitely encourage you to check out his new book, Drinking from the River of Light, on Amazon. Go get it. It's going to inspire your hearts tremendously. Uh, Mark, what's, what's the best way you can find out about you and your work? Just the best website? Yeah, so, so there's two websites. There's marknepo.com and there's a sister website, threeintentions.com, all spelled out as one word. And I would, would add, uh, since we're talking about that, that anyone interested in you know, all of my teaching engagements and speaking is there. But there's a spe- next year I'll be offering three uh, journeys for a small group of people, 30 people at most in each. And that's open for registration. And if you go to, anyone goes to my website, there's a link and you can get all the details about, about those um, it's in addition to my traveling. I do those um, nearby where I live. And, um, and so I love offering those journeys. Amazing. We'll post, uh, Mark, we'll post all of the, uh, your links and your website uh, in the show notes where, folks, I want you to definitely encourage you to check out Mark's website and his work. Look in the show notes. And, folks, uh, it's been an amazing episode. Definitely... Uh, I want you to just re-listen to the episodes, share it with your friends and family, download and spread the word about Mark's uh, amazing work. I think you'll, you'll be deeply, deeply inspired. Send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. I would love, as you know, I would love to hear about your key takeaways from uh, today's episode. Mark, once again, thank you so much for coming on. We'll definitely have you back shortly. Everyone, I'll catch you in the next episode of Soul Talk. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply 
Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.